Good morning, everybody. Good morning. We are in Revelation chapter 8. So if you'll take your Bibles there today, we are going to look at the beginning of the trumpet judgments. And we will probably not get into the trumpet judgments themselves today because, I mean, it's a whole chapter. And there are some things that I want to discuss before we actually start digging into this verse by verse. It happens that way. Whenever you're going through Revelation, there's the meaning of the individual verse. But then there's, well, how does it fit into the rest of the book? You know, when does this happen? Is this a parentheses, you know, kind of like an aside that John is taking so that way he can explain something new? Or is this taking us further in the narrative? So chronology is pretty important. And today it's probably one of the most important issues of chronology because what I'm going to share with you is what I have found to be the most convincing proof of a pre-trib rapture. And this is something that I've heard from other people. I learned it from somebody uh, just by doing research and reading an article online. So I'm indebted to Robert Dean Jr., um, his article on this subject. But if one can properly understand the chronology of Revelation, one is furnished with a really good proof of a pre-trib rapture. So let's look at chapter 8, verse number 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now there's stuff we're going to talk about concerning the silence in heaven. It talks in the next few verses there about the prayers of the saints. A lot of really awesome stuff we're going to go into. But let's skip down just a little bit, and let's briefly summarize what these judgments are are going to look like these seven trumpet judgments, or at least the first that are represented in chapter 8. So the first angel sounds in verse 7, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. Now there's a debate among scholars. Students of Revelation are divided about whether this is the perspective of John, like what he's seeing, it looks like blood, or literally is blood. I tend to say let's err on the side of being literal, unless we have a good reason to not believe in a literal view. In this case, God is doing judgments that have never before happened in the history of the world. This is the very end of history. So should it surprise us for God to do some really bizarre stuff? Okay, like has it ever rained blood before like this? Okay, no. I mean, sure, I'm sure there's been rain that had a red tint to it, possibly caused by, you know, some natural explanation. But, um, this is unique stuff, I believe, because we're at the end of history. God is pouring out his wrath on creation before he renews it and restores it. So when I see hail and fire mingle with blood, I take it literally. I think it's miraculous to say that hail is on fire. And not everybody views it that way. Some people think that fire is like lightning and it's hail coming down when it's storming with lightning. But wouldn't it be pretty interesting for there to be hail on fire? I mean, you can't say God can't do that because yeah. he does it in the Old Testament. Um, some people would even dispute that in the plagues of Egypt. They would say, again, that's lightning and hail. But the burning bush perfectly illustrates the fact that he can take something that, that doesn't fit and make it work. Okay, he can take a bush, put it on fire. That doesn't work. Okay, the bush is going to burn up, but it doesn't. And so, yes, if hail was on fire, the hail is going to melt. It's not going to remain. It's not going to remain hail, but. The MEV says, which going from the text of Perceptus, right? It says the first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. Hail yeah, and, and, and that's what it, it says what it says here. A hail and fire mingled with blood. Okay. Yeah, mingled, mixed. 
But, I mean, the idea is that all of this is coming down from the sky at the same time. Hail and fire and blood. Very so, scary. So this is very scary stuff. Very, and, very frightening. And I think when they see it, they're not going to be able... Galileo. <laughs> I don't think they're going <laughs> to... All right, uh, some classic rock references thrown in there. Uh, but I don't think people are going to be able to say, oh, this is easily explained by this. The whole point is God's revealing his wrath upon the earth, and he's doing this in a miraculous, supernatural manner. The next plague that's mentioned is in verse number eight. There was a great mountain burning with fire cast into the sea, and a third part of the sea became blood. Okay, so this right here, is something that people are warning about today. Like if you were to look up online uh, the idea of an asteroid colliding into us, or excuse me if I don't get all the terms properly, I'm not an astronomer, but you know, a meteor striking the earth, some large celestial body crashing into us. This is stuff that NASA talks about. They warn about how things are on a certain trajectory. Okay, thank you. That's what I thought. But uh, the idea is that things from outer space could potentially collide with us. And we are able to track how things move with some reliability, but of course things could change course. And that's why NASA every now and then will say, well, yeah, there's something that's heading our way. It's probably not going to hit us, but it could, you know? And so this is the sort of stuff that makes you think, oh, wow. All right. Maybe one of these things that they're talking about is on a collision course with earth is actually this mountain burning with fire that will happen in the coming tribulation. And so there are many prophecy experts who are writing books about this. I think that we got to be careful because we don't know, you know, that the Bible doesn't identify which one is going to strike. It just says one is going to, and it comes from the heavens. It's a mountain. It's massive. And it's on fire. This sounds like something straight out of an end of the world sci-fi movie, except it's really going to happen. And, and it's going to strike the sea. And it says a third part is going to become blood. Um, uh, that could very well simply be explained by the death of the creatures that are in the water. You know, their blood permeates the water. Uh, there could be another supernatural miracle that attends this where the water, you know, becomes blood uh, above and beyond that which, you know, comes from the animals that are killed. I don't know. Uh, people in the water, ships being destroyed. Yeah, but a third part of the sea, submarines. Yes. Uh, and that makes me think about that tragedy that just happened. Yeah. Uh, but. In verse number eight, we have the mountain of fire and a third part of the sea becoming blood. Um, I will say a couple things about this. Um, this is going to affect our food supply in a way that uh, is difficult to imagine. I mean, imagine the pollution, the ecological disaster that will follow from a third part of the sea being turned to blood. Uh, I mean, and this is this is going to affect the world uh, in ways that I think only someone who's a scientist who understands the environment and how everything's connected, I don't understand all of those things. But they could tell you that if a third part of the sea turns to blood, okay, coastal waters included, like this is going to affect more than we can imagine. And so a lot of people will die after the effects. Uh, there are people who may try saying that at the time, but I think God's going to try, I think he is going to succeed actually in dispelling a lot of the myths that people believe today. I think that at that time in the tribulation, there will be two views, two explanations, and both will be supernatural. I think that at this point in the tribulation, people are having to place their bets. Is this really God, like the Bible says, or this guy over here called the Antichrist, who may or may not be associated with 
who knows aliens from outer space. And when I say aliens, I'm not using in literal sense. I do believe they would be demonic entities, but there's going to be a supernatural outpouring of deception. So they're going to be people who won't deny that this is supernatural. I think they simply will say God is not as strong as the Bible says he is. He wrote the book. Of course, he's going to say he's the winner and we're putting our trust in the beast. We're putting our trust in the dragon. And later on in the tribulation, after the beast comes back from the dead, after having been slain, um, after the beast kills the two witnesses who are putting a lot of uh, pressure on the world by pronouncing judgment after judgment, they're going to think that, oh, look, the beast won. These two witnesses have been pouring out all of these plagues and the beast just killed them. And so when that happens, a lot of people are going to say, yes, it's a supernatural war. You got to pick your side. We're siding with the beast. We're siding with the Antichrist. And so I don't think that at this point, people are probably going to be saying, oh, this is a natural explanation. I think that the supernatural has invaded history at this point in a way that no one can deny it. It's just a matter of interpretation. There won't be anybody at this point who is a, an atheist in the classic sense. Oh, well, we can explain everything using science. Okay, at this point, it's going to be a battle of the supernatural. Uh, yes. Well, Same. the people of the earth then believe that these, like this asteroid or whatever that hits the water mm -hmm. was called by the two witnesses. I think that they will. And I think the witnesses obviously are not representing themselves. They're representing God. So when it says later on during the vials that they curse the God of heaven, I don't think that's just taking the Lord's name in vain, you know, without thinking about what you're saying. I do believe when it says they curse the God of heaven, they know he's there. They, they envision him existing in some way and they curse him because they know, they know that he's the enemy. Like they are going, like we as Christians, we know there's a supernatural battle. We have God and the enemy. There will be what I call theistic Satanism in the end times where people will believe that Satan is real. And they'll believe that God is real. Now, I doubt that they'll probably believe that God is omnipotent because how can you say an omnipotent God will lose? You can't. So they're going to have to reinvent God some way and say, yeah, he exists, but he's not everything the Bible says he is. And the devil's been getting this bad rap. He's been misrepresented. Uh, yeah, he's such a nice guy. And really, the God of the Bible, he's just so judgmental and wicked and evil. That's the kind of stuff that people are already saying somewhat. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so I think that that's what's going to emerge uh, in the end times. And we're getting closer. The more paganism we see uh, on the rise, the closer that seems and the more realistic this portrayal is. Um, if you were to go back 50 years ago, it was just not as realistic uh, because the big battle was you know, atheism, naturalism, uh, big bang. And it's not that people have left those things behind necessarily. It's just that they kind of synthesize them with spiritual things. Uh, the new age movement is really big about that, but let's keep reading. Um, so we're on the third, um, sorry, verse number nine, uh, a third part of the creatures, which were in the sea had life. They died. And a third part of the ships were destroyed. So commerce is greatly disrupted by this. Uh, a third part of the ships of the world. Think about the ships on the way back up at the ports during COVID. That's what I'm saying. You look at the maps and they were all lined out over the ocean. Uh, get toilet imagine a third part of the entire earth, their, their, their naval commerce. I mean, that is, economically speaking, it, they're already suffering at this point. I mean, we've seen the seals, we've seen the famine, we've seen the war. There's already disrupted economy. This is going to, you know, 
tip the scale even further. Um, in verse number 10, it says, A third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the waters and upon the fountains of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many died of the waters because they were made bitter. Uh, the word absinthe in English comes from the Greek term that's used here. So, um, wormwood, wor wormwood, huh? Absinthe, absinthe. Yeah. And so <clears throat> this is simply referring to uh, a plant that is bitter and toxic. And, uh, and so wormwood, that's the English term for the plant. There's also, you know, a Greek term and a Latin term. But um, the idea is that these waters are poisoned. And so this is something that's going to affect everybody. Also, I want to point this out. While we are promised, when I say we, I mean believers who live in the tribulation. They're part of the bride of Christ too. These are people who will come to faith after the rapture. Those people, they will not be saved from every aspect of this. That's why we, we glory, we exult in our promise of deliverance from the tribulation. Because we know we will be saved from so much more than just our sins. Because judgment's going to come on the earth. And so that's why the pre-trib rapture is something we treasure, we value. But um, the people who live in the tribulation, yes, they'll be saved from certain things. Uh, at least we know the 144,000, they, they receive that seal on their foreheads. They're protected from the demonic locusts. Um, the question, though, is how much are believers safe from? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, the plagues of Egypt, some they are not affected by. Others they are affected by. I assume it's going to be like that in the tribulation. Um, which ones will affect believers and which ones will not? We are not given full information on that. So, yes, Scott. Back to wormwood, specifically wormwood. Chernobyl is the Ukrainian word for wormwood. Wow, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, which makes you go. Did they call it that before or after the meltdown? It was before. It's saying that that's what it was. So we watched that, those guys. Crazy guys going underneath Chernobyl. No, 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 no. The, the two kids. The two missionary guys, um, and they were in Chernobyl, and they, and they said something about it being wormwood. I'm like, you wonder if, if the star that falls from heaven, it doesn't tell us exactly. Yeah, it doesn't tell you the mechanics here. It says the star falls, right? and it strikes the waters. Could it strike some nuclear facility, and that in turn pollutes water? I mean, we do, it could, is it a direct relationship? The star hits the water, and it poisons it, or... Is it an indirect effect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We don't know, yeah. but I mean, it could be. That's very interesting to think about. Well, the, the trumpet before the second trumpet with the big mountain. Yes. Mm -hmm. the, mm. So the that meteor. sounds like a big meteor, but this does too. So are they simultaneous? No, they, they do. They happen sequentially, and I think it's going to be, and this is something we'll talk about in a moment because it's a very big part of my lesson today. Uh, this is happening in conjunction with the preaching of the two witnesses mm. and the two witnesses, they're, they're not just going to be like, Ooh, look at that wormwood. They're going to be preaching that this is about to happen. And so it's one after another. It really heightens the, the anticipation of Christ's return at the end of the tribulation. It's one trumpet, then another trumpet, then another trumpet, then another trumpet. And these trumpets are going to go all the way past the death of the two witnesses. Um, I think that uh, the seventh trumpet is not blown until after they die. And that's just off the top of my head. Again, that's a little bit further in Revelation than we're at right now. Uh, we eventually will get there. Yes. So I have a random question. It's, I mean, guys, it's, it's going different. So the seven angels, could those be the seven angels of the churches that are now up in heaven and this is their job? I don't, I don't think so. Um, some people have suggested that. 
but I think seven there, it just refers to the fact of completion. It just says we have seven stars, seven churches, seven, seven, seven. Um, I don't think that it's necessarily the same. The angels in Revelation um, two and three, I think that those angels are probably humans. Um, and I think that they represent the church. I think that it is a uh, representative or symbolic way of referring to the individual congregations that are there. I think that you could narrow it down if you want to and say that the, the angel may refer to the person who's hearing that message that is in the congregation. So that could be anybody. Let's say you're there when the letter is given to the church of, you know, Laodicea. Okay, the angel of the church of Laodicea could be the person who is listening to that. Um, some people think that the angel could be the ones delivering the message to the church, like apostolic delegates, people who would serve as couriers and send the letters. Uh, but the, the letters are addressed to the angels. So that means that the angels are not people that simply pass the information along, but they are receiving that information. And since the way the letters are written is clearly written to human believers and the angels are receiving those messages, it doesn't seem to me consistent with the idea that the angels are heavenly beings that haven't fallen. It seems these are humans with human problems and they're believers. Um, so that's, that's a good thing to bring up though, because there are some people who would see the seven angels of two through three and they'd say these seven angels are the same. Some would say that these are the angels of the presence um, or they're like archangels. Some people think Gabriel's included in this. That's possible. Uh, some people would add Raphael, Uriel, uh, Michael, all these angels that are mentioned outside the Bible. The Bible doesn't mention those people with the exception of Michael and Gabriel. And Michael and Gabriel are not mentioned as being two of these angels here. So that's speculation. And you would it's, think he would call him out since he's already introduced I mean, it's, it's possible. I mean, one could say the argument from silence is a weak one, but... I'm not convinced that these are the same angels. Um, I, at the very least, I would be hesitant to say that unless there's good biblical proof for it. And I don't see any. So, I mean, it could be. I could get to heaven and find it. Oh, Uriel, Raphael, Michael, like these are all these angels right here. And, and it could be that those were reliable traditions that were not recorded in the Bible, but they were passed on through a prophet by word of mouth. That's possible. We simply don't know. Uh, but we have Wormwood, the fourth angel. It says a third part of the sun was smitten, a third part of the moon, third part of the stars, so that uh, a third part of them was darkened and the day shone not for a third part of it and the night likewise. Um, Henry Morris mentions in his commentary on this that this is not just like an aesthetic thing, like, oh, well, we like it being bright during the day. You know, it's going to be a little more dark. Uh, but this is something that will affect the energy output from the sun. And so since we, we need energy from the sun to thrive, all organisms on earth need that energy. Uh, this is going to have, again, effects that uh, we could only speculate about. I'm sure there are scientists who could write entire papers on what would be the effects of there being a third part of that energy, a third part of that light being taken from us. Your gardens and crops are going to fail. Your chickens are going to stop laying for sure. So there's two things that cuts into your whole there you go. industry. So, so it's going to affect an, the animals producing, you know, food like chickens is what Christy said and uh, crops failing. So, and again, this is all on top of the seals that have already happened at this point. You would think like mankind's already at its wits end and now it's just going to get worse. And the trumpets aren't even the worst of it. The vials come after. So why is God doing this? Why is he ramping up? 
Why is he ramping up the intensity of these plagues? He's doing it to get their attention. And he's doing it in such a way that no one can, like we've already talked about, explain away the obvious. This is really what the Bible says. You're going to have the two witnesses saying that. They're going to say, guys, it's been talked about for the past 2,000 years, okay? If this event is fulfilled soon, which I think it will be. You know, for the past 2,000 years, we've been talking about this stuff. Christians have been reading it and preaching on it. They're happening sequentially. And I'm going to tell you exactly when they're going to happen. I think they're prophets. And so they're going to be able to tell you to the day. Like you can expect on this day, the next trumpet's going to be blown and all this is going to happen. And people will believe as a result of that. A lot of people will be hardened in their unbelief. But again, God's trying to bring as many people into the fold as possible. Now, the next thing that I want to talk about, and this will probably be the last thing that we talk about today, and uh, we'll save the rest of it for next week. But um, when do the trumpets take place? Uh, we know that the trumpets are taking place during the ministry of the two witnesses. Okay, and, and I'll prove that to you right now in, let's see, uh, find my place real quick. Uh, chapter 11, um, it says... Verse number, oh, just give me one second. I'll eventually get my way to it. In verse 8 of chapter 11, it says, Their dead bodies shall lie in the street, lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord also was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and a great fear fell upon them which saw them. And a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. The same hour was there an earthquake, a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Verse 15, and the seventh angel sounded. So that means that the witnesses, they die before the seventh trumpet is blown. So we, we have them being contemporary to all these judgments that we've been reading about at this point. Um, so what this means is, if the witnesses are in the first half of the tribulation, we divide it up as seven years total, got three and a half, and then another three and a half years. If they are witnessing in the first half, that means from the very first day of those seven years, seals and judgments are taking place. Uh, some people would say the judgments of the trumpets don't happen until their ministry has been going for a little while. Okay, so maybe the second quarter of the tribulation, they've been preaching for a little bit. And after the first 24 months, that's when the trumpets happen. That's possible. I respect that view. It could be that the seal judgments that we've talked about before are after the rapture in a gap of indefinite time that takes place before the signing of the covenant with Israel, which actually kicks off the seven years. And then they'd say, well, once that covenant is signed, that's when the witnesses start preaching and that's when the trumpets start blowing. Either way you look at it, the point is the first half of the tribulation before the midway point the wrath of God is indisputably being poured out. And this is such a crucial argument, guys, for the preacher of view, because no one, as far as I know, really doubts that the trumpet judgments are the wrath of God. 
Now they dispute the seals. They would say the seals, that's the wrath of man. That's not the wrath of God. Well, the person opening the seals is God, Jesus Christ. But setting that aside, no one really doubts that the trumpets are the wrath of God because after that sixth seal is opened, okay? And, and after that point where you have heaven pulled back and people seeing the throne of God and there's a great earthquake and then soon after the rest of the trumpets are blown and those judgments take place, no one denies that that is the wrath because in the sixth seal, it says the great day of his wrath has come. So the trumpets are safely within the portion of the tribulation that's designated as the wrath of God. Now, this is really cool because in 1 Thessalonians 5, what does it say we're saved from? We're saved from the wrath of God. So if you are a mid-trib rapture person, you got a problem because you have people experiencing these trumpet judgments, this wrath of God, before the rapture happens. If you're pre-wrath, which says you go through roughly three-quarters of the tribulation, again, they're experiencing the wrath. They're experiencing the trumpets. They're experiencing the vials. If you're post-trib, you're experiencing all of it. The point is, if God has promised that the wrath, which is coming upon the earth, known as the day of the Lord, this is not the final great white throne judgment. This begins when God pours out these literal judgments on the earth. If we're promised to be exempt from that, the rapture has to be before the trumpet judgments. That means the rapture has to be before these two witnesses. Um, again, describing their ministry in chapter 11, um, it says in verse number six, these have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood. Doesn't that sound familiar? It sounds like the trumpet judgments, the water turning to blood. And to smite the earth with all plagues. That kind of catches all those trumpets in there. As often as they will. So they are clearly standing as prophets announcing the wrath of God, so much so that they're associated with the wrath. The people blame those two witnesses because though they, in a sense, they are not bringing the wrath on the earth. I think that the angels are the ones who are carrying that out um, as instruments of God. They're still pronouncing it. So the people are going to blame the two witnesses. They're going to, you know, want to shoot the messenger, so to speak. They're the ones saying these things are coming. It's all their fault. And, uh, and so whenever the beast finally ends up taking their lives, when does that happen? Halfway through the tribulation. He is completely kept out of the inner sanctuary of the temple where their ministry takes place until halfway through the tribulation. And that's after he dies and he comes back. And this is all permitted by God. So that way the people will have a choice on either side. You, you, you believe in God or you believe in Satan. But I mean, you have evidence right there in front of you. Make your choice. But in chapter 11, in verse number one and verse two, it says that for the first three and a half years, the court of the temple and the city of Jerusalem, the Gentiles trod all over. Okay, that means they have a military occupation in Jerusalem. This is probably part of that treaty that the Antichrist makes with, with Israel. But the temple is off limits. The courtyard is permissible. The city is permissible. But they cannot go into what's called the naos. That would be like the Holy of Holies and also the holy place that's you know next to it. And so that portion of the temple is kept off limits. That's where the two witnesses will be. That's where they, and people are going to try to get them. They will attempt it because it says they have the power to, with flames from their mouths, burn their enemies. Okay. And so people are going to try to kill them during this time because the trumpets are falling. 
okay, the judgments are happening and they're blaming these two witnesses. They think if we take them out, then we can stop the judgments from taking place. And anytime someone tries to attempt that, the two witnesses will bring judgment upon those individuals until the beast will try personally to do the same thing. But this time, the two witnesses, they lay their lives down and they die as martyrs. And that is when the beast will ascend to his absolute position of power. He expects all to worship him, all to take his mark or death. That's when God turns the dial up even more and the vials or the bowls, depending on your translation, will then be poured out. The main thing, and I know it's easy to get bogged down in all this. What is clear from Revelation is the first three and a half years of the tribulation is going to be terrible. And it's going to be the wrath of God, not just the wrath of man, being poured out. And if we as Christians are promised that we will be kept from that wrath, how will we be kept from it when we're caught up in the sky? 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, that means we will not be there. So I think the preacher view is not just like pie in the sky thinking, like it's, it's hopeful thinking, wishful thinking. I think it's based on scripture. And I believed it for a long time because I was raised to believe that. And, and I remember reading 1 Thessalonians for the first time on my own. Nobody reading it to me. I read it on my own. And when I got to chapter five, I'm like, well, there it is. That's pre-trib right there. To me, it made so much sense. It just flew right at me off the page. But the more I've studied it, the more I'm convinced that we as Christians will not go through that time period. So if the plain sense leads us to that conclusion, we shouldn't break fellowship with Christians over something like this. But at the same thing, we shouldn't be ashamed of the preacher view. And we should, I think, preach it as a means of encouragement. Because Paul said, comfort one another with these words. And so if we're not talking about the pre-trib rapture, the blessed hope, then I think we got a problem because we're told to. But uh, I know we didn't fill in any of the blanks today, but we covered a ton. And next week, we will go through uh, the verses once again. This time, we'll look at more of the spiritual application for us as Christians. But thank you so much for listening. And we pray that God will bless you. Have a good day. Bye.